Holy Gospel according to Luke chapter 16. Glory to you, Lord. And Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said, said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation that are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise you, O Christ. Sisters and brothers, grace be and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. I have been doing this uh, preaching thing now. I'm in my 36th year, and I want to tell you something. Every single time it's come up, I've thought this Gospel text is just a bugger. Because I have never... I've never been 100% um, confidently sure that I know for sure what Jesus is even saying, which, um, you know, makes it kind of hard to preach a, a sermon on, on the topic when you don't even know what you're talking about. Although there are those who have said I've preached sermons where they were pretty sure I did not know what I was talking about, but that's a different story. <laughs> I was encouraged this week to realize that I'm not alone because I was driving up to Northwest Iowa uh, to see family and friends, and I was listening to Luther Seminary's podcast. I do this every week on the week's text. Some of the, the, the New Testament, Old Testament um, preaching professors, they just kind of round table it about the text. And um, well, it was pledge week on IPR. I, God bless IPR, I love IPR, but 10 hours of pledge week was just more than I could put in. Um, so I listened to the podcast and Matt Skinner from Luther Seminary's uh, New Testament department, who of course knows way more than I do, but I was very encouraged when he said that he thinks this is the most confusing parable in the Bible. 
Nobody, he said, knows 100% sure what Jesus means to, seems to be saying in certain parts of it, because there are parts of it that just don't sound what bit like Jesus. And so what he suggested is that what we do is, um, for preachers and listeners, is we just have some fun and we play with this parable, and we, we um, see where it goes. Another commentator, by the way, agreed on this parable. He called it wildly ambiguous. Well, ambiguity, I want to be clear, is not necessarily my favorite thing to get from Jesus. Um, although as I trove and I thought about it some more, it occurred to me that in this case, maybe ambiguity is actually perfect. Because one thing that is clear is that in the larger context of this portion of Luke, this parable is part of almost an extended sermon series in which Jesus is talking about faith and faithfulness and money. And surely, for people of faith, I mean, this is a topic that can be loaded with ambiguity, right? As we live. Jesus says, sell everything that you have, for example, in this, and, and, and give to the poor. And we say, well, you know, if I sell everything that I have, then, then I'll be poor and I can't give to anybody. Or Jesus says, give to every single, every single person who, who, who begs for me. Well, I'd never get across town in Iowa City at the stoplights. I mean, and so, you know, and I, I stop there and I think, you know, I know Jesus says that, but maybe if I give to him, I'll be enabling bad behavior. And so you drive by and on one hand, you feel like you're doing exactly the right thing, but on the other hand, you don't. You don't make eye contact because you also feel just a little bit guilty. And there you are, ambiguity. Sometimes it's exactly the name of the place where we and money live together. Yes? So following uh, Dr. Skinner's advice, we're going to just take a look together at this absolutely ambiguous parable. And we are going to play with it. And we're going to just see where it leads us and uh, maybe where it leads us regarding some of these ambiguities we do face in our lives. We start in the first verse where Jesus said to his disciples there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. No ambiguities so far. There is a manager, a, a business manager, in other translations the Bible might call him a steward, who was entrusted with the management of a business, um, possibly it looks like maybe an ag finance kind of business, not owned by him, but to be managed by him, stewarded by him, faithfully looking out for the best interests of this aforementioned rich man who is the actual owner of the business, which the manager didn't faithfully do. He rather, Jesus says, squandered the owner's resources, at which point a whistleblower blows the whistle on him. And so reading on, the owner, says Jesus, summoned him, said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, your stewardship, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The owner confronts him, tells him he's going to fire him, but he gives him a little time to bring the books up to date and then submit his final report first. Hindsight being 2020, 
What he probably should have done is confront him, fire him, and then had the security folks uh, take his keys, uh, watch him clean out his desk, escort him to the door, and then block his online access. Because what happens next is that the manager says to himself, what will I do now that my master's taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. He's got a problem, right? He's soon unemployed. When the reason for, for that gets out, he's never gonna get a job like this one again. Uh, he has neither the skill set nor the interest to do other things, things beneath him, but he's got an idea. An idea for how to stitch together a self-made golden parachute. It's that he'll have what he needs after he's let go. I've decided what to do, he says, so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. And so he contacts the people, goes through the books, and he contacts the people who owe his master money. He tells them they can get completely out of debt for a fraction of the cost. Because he'll write the debt amount down, and in some cases he'll write it way down. Apparently he kind of knows what shape people are in and what they can do at a moment's notice. And he's got the authority, the legal authority, to do this because he is technically still the manager, the steward. He knows he's going to be fired, but he hasn't yet been fired. And if they pay that fire sale reduced, that was kind of a pun, wasn't it, Greg? <laughs> I mean, you know it. If he pays that, that, that reduced amount, if they do, then their entire debt, he tells them, is going to be written off as paid in full. But the deal, he says, is, this, is like, this is like an auto commercial on Saturday. The deal ends today at 5 o'clock. <laughs> and for not at all ambiguous reasons, they all jump at the opportunity. Which takes us to the last sentence of the parable where ambiguity struts in to make her dramatic entrance as Jesus concludes by saying, and the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Well, I mean, the most obvious ambiguity, the low-hanging fruit, uh, ambiguity-wise, is that surely, I'm going to guess everyone uh, to this point, hearing this parable assumes that the master in the parable, the owner of it all, of course, represents God, the owner of all. Except the master in this parable, in the end, now commends the dishonest manager's scheming shrewdness, which Jesus then adds the observation to that, that the children of this age are better at that kind of thing than children of the light, which I imagine is probably true. But what do you do with that truth? Preach a sermon titled, Come to the Dark Side, <laughs> where the ends justify the means, and do unto others before they do unto you, because after all, it is all about you. I don't think so, right? I mean, Jesus, after all, in Luke, is the one who sounded the opposite theme of do unto others as you would have them do to you and let your light shine in the dark. At which point Jesus doubles down ambiguity-wise by telling his disciples, 
by the way, he's talking to his disciples, so apparently there's supposed to be something edifying uh, faith-wise. This is addressed to his followers. Therefore I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they, they apparently being these friends you've shrewdly made with dirty money and devious means, they, your bought friends, may welcome you into the eternal homes, which more literally, literally could be translated uh, eternal tabernacles, tabernacles being the biblical word for the place where God dwells with God's people. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, Jesus says to his disciples, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal dwelling place in the presence of God. Really? Remember I told you from the start, there are verses in this bugger of a parable that don't sound like Jesus. So here's what I think. I could be totally wrong, but the people I listened to this week gave me permission to be totally wrong, and so I'm just seizing it. I could be totally wrong, but I think both the master's commendation of his dishonest manager and Jesus' closing recommendation to his followers can only make sense if we hear those words being spoken somewhere between tongue-in-cheek facetiously and critically sarcastically. As in the master of the parable seeing that he's been taken by this dishonest steward to whom he had entrusted his business to look out for him and for his best interests, but who instead shrewdly, angle-workingly, looking out for himselfly, sticks it, sticks it to the owner and his interests, and does it so deviously legally, there's nothing the owner can do about it. At which point, seeing that he got took by a master taker, he now does commend his soon-to-be-fired employee. Very good, he says. Very good. You saw an angle, and you took it, and you took me. Bravo. I may not be right, but that's how I understand the words of commendation from the master to his dishonest steward in this parable. Similarly, it's the only way I can make sense of Jesus' words to his disciples right after the parable. Remember those words, therefore, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. I can only make sense of those words by hearing them spoken totally sarcastically. As in, yeah, work every angle you can. Make every friend you can via slimy means. And then maybe those bought off friends could be the ones to welcome you to your eternal home in the presence of the eternal God. Yeah, right. Biting sarcasm really is all that makes sense to me because because the only one, of course, who can welcome anyone into eternal homes in the presence of the eternal God is God. 
That understanding, I think, does then lead us rather unambiguously well to Jesus' final words in this text, where he says, if you then have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, I mean the world's filthy money, who will entrust to you true riches? If you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for they will either hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other, at which point Jesus then speaks the absolutely unambiguous punchline to this whole thing. You cannot, notice he doesn't say you should not, you cannot, i.e. it is impossible to serve God and well. One uh, rather prophetic writer and speaker, Brian McLaren, uh, said at the preaching conference that I was at uh, last year that churches in this country have existed for 400 years by telling people, yes, you can. What this is about to us, though, when it comes to us, what this is about then is, and it's not even stewardship time, what this is about is stewardship. And I'm now using that word stewardship in its broadest biblical sense, which is to be entrusted with all that we are and all that we have with the charge to steward it all by looking out above all for the desires, the interests, the business of the giver of it all. The giver, for example, of a life that is not ours to own but ours to live to the glory of the giver. The giver, too, of all those things we hold in our hands, not so that we can pile them up in our garages and store them up in our uh, bank and investment accounts and thus die a success because we died rich, but rather to the glory of God the giver, we can live richly, successfully, by living generously. The giver, too, of all the love that surrounds us in our lives, from which we can live faithfully by living not just loved, but living loving, being a faithful part of the way that God's love surrounds not just us, but others, too. And the giver, finally, too, of a planet that is not ours to own or use, but rather to live on and live with faithfully looking out for the interests of the Creator's creation, caring for it, as we were called to do, and in whatever way we each are able to do. And here's the absolutely unambiguous thing. Jesus is here saying absolutely unambiguously. You can't faithfully do any of that. You can't. It's impossible if your heart tries to reserve side-by-side -side thrones for two masters, God and money. What this unambiguously comes down to, in other words, is a commentary on the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, a commandment about which Luther commented in the large catechism, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, truly your God. And here's how it is. At the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, too, for that matter, and all through the day, too, you can only have one 
God. You can have a lot of things that are important to you. I hope you do. You should have. But you can only have one thing that's more important to you than anything. And that one thing is your God. Because it is your very highest allegiance. Your very, very highest good. And therefore, when pick comes to choose, as it will, you will, you will act in its interest. And if it is money, well then everything else you have been entrusted with will not be stewarded, cared for, fully or faithfully. Your loved ones, you will ask them to understand that you love them by providing for them, which is true and good, but it is not true or good enough because you won't understand that they'd like you to love them sometimes too by being around, which if money is God, you can't do because family time doesn't pay. And your loving God won't see much of you either because rather than church on Sunday, you'll be convinced you could t your time could be better spent either resting up or not resting at all from all that frantically busy worshiping you've been doing all week at the altar of money. And your neighbor in need? Well, first of all, let's just all realize they do not work nearly as hard as you do. Besides helping them, this would cost you money. And God's creation and its needs, give me a break. You don't make money hugging trees and feeling sorry for polar bears. Because after all, as politicians of all parties and stripes know and remind us, it's all about the economy, stupid. This is an American creed. A creed, however, to which Jesus in today's sex text says with no ambiguity in the end. No. No, it's not. It's all about, it's all about faithfulness. Or as Jesus puts it, you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. Note again, not you should not. You cannot. It's impossible to serve God and wealth. Which, well, darn it, maybe leaves a corner in most of our hearts thinking we might just prefer a Jesus who would remain ambiguous. Hopefully, though, in all of us, there's a bigger and better place in our hearts. Where lives both the question and the prayer? How might we, we each of us, we all of us as church, and even we each and all of us as, as a nation, grow into our callings with our lives and our all to live faithfully in the direction of Jesus' preferences for us. Amen.